0: Hi, Steve.
1: Hey, Mitch. How are you? I'm great.
0: Welcome back to Everyday Meeple. We've never said the name of the show while recording the show, I don't think. Really? I don't think so.
1: Well, welcome back to Everyday Meeple. I
0: could be wrong.
1: I haven't seen you in in months.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, since season two. This is uh, season three, where us, as everyday people, talk about everything Meeple. Love it. That's the new... I'm going to make promos for that. That's going to be our new... T-shirt? Maybe, I'll, maybe we'll make a T-shirt.
1: Yeah, that's what we—that's what we do around here. We talk about everything meeple, all things board game-related, um, and yeah, we should just jump right into it. We haven't talked about games in a while.
0: Season three, what's going on, Steve? What is going on? What's going on? Um, I'm Clank. In- we're we're we have a Clank legacy on the go, and that has been uh, the most fun campaign i think that we've we've done yet
1: the clank legacy thing before we, we launch into maybe or, or talk about what it is um is exciting for me because legacy games are really exciting for me I, I love the idea of evolving game states and and playing campaign style games and unfortunately for us and our partners we we tried to tackle pandemic legacy oh, which man. at the time when we when we season, got it it was
0: legacy season 1 pandemic yeah. season 1 we've been doing it for almost 3 years now and we've got 6 games yeah, in it well, yeah so more than that because you get 2 chances for each month yeah. and sometimes we've done 2 games in a night uh, several times because we've lost and then we've started again yeah uh, that started off as a such a good time where it's a great time we didn't it was our first legacy that we started and the the first night that we played, we were like, How seriously are we gonna take this? Are we gonna are we gonna be able to take this seriously? And we lost the first game yep. b- by the end of the first round. I've never I, it was it was bonkers and it really yep. made us all go, Yeah, we're gonna take this more seriously.
1: And and speaking it was of exciting. Was, And speaking of taking it seriously, yeah. What I've learned from our experience playing our first legacy game was that you kind of do have to take it seriously. And if you're planning on starting a legacy game with a group of friends or your partners, I don't think it hurts to say, you know what, once a month or once a week or bi-weekly, we're going to sit down and we're going to do this thing. Because they're they're good enough and they're cool enough, uh, and it helps to keep the momentum going. And I think we've lost the ball. I think we'll, we can do exactly that and finish out the second half. Um, but Clank, we've gone every Monday for... Well, we, Five did, we did Sunday then, last week weeks. because
0: Monday wasn't was going to worry. It's been great. Six six games. Uh, I won the first three. I've lost two with a score of zero now. And it's put me in last place uh, in the overall standings, I think.
1: Yeah, it's actually really encouraging that you... I uh, hate to say it. It's really <laughs> encouraging that you have lost the last two because I was worried that you were just flat steamrolling us with your little dwarf and his hammer.
0: It's a uh, It's such a fun game. Uh my my problem is I realized at some point that because it's a legacy game and because this one uh I mean you can play it after, right? So it'll mm. be a Clank game after and it'll be this really interesting uh version of Clank. But you know, we paid Melissa bought it for me for a Christmas and it's like a hundred and ten bucks. It's a big box. And once you're past it, you don't get to see any of that stuff. So now yeah. instead of like trying to figure out how am I gonna win this game I'm more worried about going around and reading and finding the story before it's gone, <laughs> right because if we don't go do that thing, we'll never see it again, yeah, and I know that once it's over, I'm gonna go and read through the whole book and I'm gonna open everything that we missed and right. gonna, but but i wanna i wanna I want I feel it I wanna go down and and at least get that. I don't care if I don't make it out, yeah. and get zero as long as i I went and got that thing, yeah, so I, it's changed the way I'm playing the game for sure,
1: I hear you, and I had noticed that with you um. Because that's kind of how I play video games. Hmm. But I have I had such a not great time playing. I think two games in a row for Clank went not great for me. One was like flat out demoralizing. Yeah, they're, they're hung right there on the wall, the the stats. One was zero, but even the one before that wasn't so good. It was like 30 points or something.
0: That's, that's weird because I'm looking at the scores and like, you, you were like second place in the first game.
1: <laughs> but the one before I got zero.
0: There was no one before the first game. Let's see. Uh, I
1: got very few points. Yeah. Either way, maybe I, I did great, but I didn't feel great. You didn't feel great because so, you didn't get out. Yeah. And that crushed you. It crushed me. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, I don't want to spoil any of the the plot or anything of that game, but kind of opposite to you, how you're, you you want to explore, That's I'm kind that. of embracing my... I'm, I'm the character for anyone who's ever seen any of the promos for this game. There's one of the the minis that come with the game, has the arm flex going on, looks really pompous. And, you know, one of my goals basically is to get out of the get back home every game. So I have kind of embraced this kind of get in, get out, screw your friends. And I'm not, you know, doing that like uh, vocally and saying, yeah, screw you guys. Um, But my character really feels like I've done my work. I'm going back for a beer. See you later. Um,
0: Just doesn't care about the story at all.
1: But the thing is, on the way out, I feel like, um, even though I felt like I wasn't going to experience much of the story, on the way out last time, I was able to skirt around and get a couple that, on the way that out. that one last one up in the Where corner. no one was, no was going to go there. No one's going there. So, you know, it happened.
0: Uh, it's not a spoiler. Like, the the boxes of the characters come with, like, a little checklist right. of things that will advance you on the thing. And it's like, it's sort of the get-you-going uh, stuff before any of the other yeah. uh, story is revealed, before any of the stuff is revealed uh it starts where you have a small checklist and everybody's is slightly different of if you can do this in a game your your stats go up kind of thing. Yeah. And and you've taken that to heart. So the very first challenge you were given you're like I'm. Uh, this is my focus now. Yeah, I did for kinda, the rest of the campaign. Kind of
1: focused. Yeah. And for anyone, we haven't done this in a while, Mitch. But for anyone not listening, Clank Legacy is based on a a, a deck builder from a few years back by Renegade Games. Um, Their where tagline
0: is deck building adventure.
1: Deck building adventure, right? Which where is fantastic because it is. Where you are just playing a little adventurer meeple who has to you know move around on a, on a physical board, and kind of your main goal is to get a treasure in the depths. Um, but every time you play certain cards and make certain moves, you are, you're clanking, your armor's clanking, uh, which, which results in you throwing cubes onto the board, eventually dragons attack for, for different reasons, uh, and all your cubes go into a bag and the cubes get pulled out and, and what is always a very tense experience because if your cubes come out, it's essentially like a hit against your, your health bar. And if you run out of health... You die, potentially lose the game, get zero points. But if you're able to get your treasure and get above ground, you um, even if you die, you get to score your points. If you get back all the way home, you get extra points. And what uh, Renegade Game Studios has done is paired up with uh, Penny Arcade, the really cool well, webcomic guys.
0: Even before that, uh, so it was Direwolf Digital Oh right, yeah. that uh, the game came from with uh, Renegade, and the first game that came out uh, a few years ago is super lighthearted comedy. It's just it's all fantasy tropes. Yeah, and uh, it takes deck building and adds in movement, kind of like uh, El Dorado. Quest for El Dorado eventually did, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's a great introduction to deck building. We played it constantly when we first got we played it. We played it a lot. We laughed. We'd play it. We'd play it again. It went so quick. And it was so fun. It was easy to get anybody to play because it was so fun. And then they came out with Clank in Space, mm-hmm. with, which is tropey sci-fi and even more comedy. I, fi- I find the jokes in that one even it's way, funnier.
1: It's way funnier than the fantasy one.
0: And yeah. now The Legacy has teamed up with Penny Arcade, and it's I think it's hilarious. Like The stories, oh. the content in this game, like it actually cracks me up Yeah, some of the writing.
1: The Acquisitions Incorporated yeah. D&D world is pretty funny. It's like a, a D&D lampooning, you know, that they do a really good job. The writing is top-notch. There's, there's laugh-out-loud jokes, which is hard when you're reading board game text. It doesn't happen very often. Uh,
0: paragraph but, at a time, and somebody somebody cracks up.
1: Yeah. It's, it's fun. Anyone looking for a legacy game experience that's not too heavy and not too crazy, that one is, is a lot of fun. Super fun. And we have only have, time. what, four games left? Five games left. Four games left. Four games left. That's crazy. One of them's tomorrow. One of them is tomorrow, right? That feels like now, oh, we only have three games left because... Yeah. Well, that one's a lot of fun. And I'm glad that we've kind of locked into uh, a night to do that because life's been crazy. We've been playing less games as a group. I've been playing a lot of games with... um, I was sick for all
0: of January, so...
1: Yeah, and yeah, we're in flu season. It's kind of wild. That sounds too bad. Um, But I've been playing a lot of games with my wife. Yeah. and we've, you know, we always played games together, way back to discovering Catan together, which we can talk about a bit more in a bit. But um, she's really kind of embraced learning some new games with me. We've really kind of latched onto Wingspan over the past six months, and I'm very excited to have introduced her to Orleans, which she's taken to it was really fun. Um so we had a good time with that one. And recently I found Castles of Burgundy at the thrift store for $3.
0: That that is Melissa's, my wife's favorite game. Which is... I'm pretty sure. A lot of fun. Well, Wasteland Express is probably her favorite game. Right. But Castles of Burgundy is a close second. I don't know which one she'd pick over that. Yeah. And Azul. She loves Azul. Um,
1: And I love these games, Wingspan or Leon, um, Castles of Burgundy. But what they've done, because both Wingspan and now more recently Castles of Burgundy uh they've been the go-to games prior to kind of discovering these quick 45 minute one-on-one games um me and Susie have been playing a fantasy kind of choose your own adventure game legacy of dragonholds right right we play i play uh, we play these characters penny and patch she's kind of an alchemist gnome who's, who's kind of a little off kilter and i'm a um catfolk wildlander Named Patch, I think it's been so long. Oh my god, been so long. Anyways, that game has been really fun. I am really kind of itching to get back to it, but it like like we talked about with pandemic. If you don't really kind of slot it in there and kind of just just do it, it, it loses some momentum and you lose some narrative steam. And uh, anyways, we'll get back to it. Penny and Patch, we're, we do, we're we, over halfway.
0: We just played what uh, Lords of Waterdeep, Melissa and I, the other day. We haven't. Last time we played was the six person game. With all of the expansions, right. and that was amazing, and uh, I want to do. A, we're going to do a whole episode on on Waterdeep and sort of its history, but uh, Melissa was like, "Oh, we haven't played Waterdeep in a while. Let's let's play Waterdeep." And it's such a fun two player game mm. that it was it blew our minds again. Like it's so smooth and so quick, and you you start off whenever you play with like six players. You have like two meeple yeah. and you, you feel like you can't do anything. Like you're yeah. staring at quests that cost 20 resources or something yeah. and you've got two people per turn and it feels like nothing can happen. And when you play with two players, you get all your meeple and it feels like you can do anything you want. And it's it's so fast and so fun.
1: Yeah. The big, the full player count feels intimidatingly limited. Oh, I loved it. It um, was super fun. Oh, it's, yeah, can't it's, wait to it's do that great again. fun.
0: Hope we can do that again. Mm-hmm. we were warned uh, not to do the six player game right I was talking with uh, some people online and they said oh oh, don't do that uh, you'll you know it'll be miserable we we did it one time and it was terrible and it I, it must completely depend on who you're playing with but yeah. we had a we had a great time it was a lot of fun
1: it was yeah it was really it was really great and we want to hopefully talk about that game sometime in the future <laughs> in some amount of detail and Kylus it's, it's got a lot of play in our group over the past couple of years I think
0: Right, so you mentioned Catan, and we were I talking did. we were talking what are we going to talk about because it's been been so long, and I wanted to talk about uh, I was saying well we haven't we haven't done this in a little while let's talk about where things are at mm-hmm. and and um, i don't I don't really know how to start that conversation like things are huge, things are booming, uh manufacturing might be a little down right now, but board games are in a golden era, and you know it started in like 95 when Catan exploded onto the world <clears throat> and that's sort of the the talking point that everybody gets everybody that comes to the hobby uh, eventually hears oh it was Catan and that that's all all good and i wanted to say like but where did where did Catan come from you know like right. what doesn't get what doesn't get talked about as much is is why did that happen yeah. you know like where did where did Catan come from and uh, it's it's interesting. It uh, is, is sort of... I've been reading a book by Stuart Woods called Eurogames, and it's just the history of, of Eurogames, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it goes into a much more of that. The fir- first half is sort of a history of it, and it sort of gets boiled down to uh, a game by Sid Saxon called Acquire.
1: Oh, right, Acquire.
0: Right? Uh, which boils down to a company... In Minnesota, called 3M, so it's Minnesota uh, Mining and Manufacturing. Right. In 1962, had uh, a ton of money, and they were trying to figure out how do we make more of that. We like we like money. How do we? And What's I guess some of the staff uh, came up with the idea of we should we should sell board games, hmm. uh, which is interesting. And uh, so they started a series called the Bookshelf Editions, right? Which I think. I'd like to I'd like to know more about that part of it because it seems like is that where the nice size of board game box came from?
1: Oh. You know? Good point.
0: Where everything before that was the big sprawling monopoly boxes that don't fit on anybody's shelves. Yeah. And three M, are they responsible for making games fit on our shelves? Oh man. That's brilliant. Yeah. They should be in I don't know, they the what's the the Diana Glebe Award or whatever? They should get one for that. Right, yeah. Diana Jones? What's the... I can't remember. I know,
1: I know what you're talking about. Um,
0: I you, didn't have a note for that thought because I just had that thought.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you can't You can't prepare for every hypothetical thought that might pop into your head. Yeah. But, yeah, I agree. That is something worth crediting someone. Nothing, and this is, you know, a hobbyist uh, with a, big, a pretty big board game collection talking, but nothing quite drives me as crazy as a Monopoly-sized box yeah. that I've got to try to fit somewhere. Yeah.
0: Is- that's my only. We have we got Rhino Hero Super Battle for Christmas, and the box is enormous, and like it yeah, it doesn't big. need to be. I don't know if that was a marketing thing where someone was like, "Well, it's Super Battle, so we should make it twenty times the size of the Rhino Hero box," but the actual content of the box would fit in like the same size box as the, Patchwork.
1: That has to be the thought process behind it. I've seen you. I haven't played this, but I've seen you post pictures where you can build a tower that's what like three or four oh, feet yeah, high or huge. something. Maybe they just like Huge game, thought, small box. We Should've have been. to reflect this in the size of the box somehow, that it can <laughs> potentially you can't play this in your car, you can't play this in the the bathroom, hmm. wherever you would. But um Habba has the weird.
0: animal upon animal, which is a nice square box. Little box. And it's twice as big as the original Rhino Hero box, and that super battle would fit in that box. And like that'd be yeah. like twice the size. It'd still be like, Wow
1: Yeah, it's a weird thing. Board game boxes. I I wish uh, this is such a niche complaint. I kind of wish there was just a standardized, like, everyone, you have to fit your game in this, what you know, Days of Wonder to get yeah. right size box or whatever. Uh, those are nice. That's me. That's the sound I make putting a game on and off my invisible shelf. Sorry. That's,
0: uh, yeah, I want to look into that.
1: So Acquire and Sid Saxon's 3M bookshelf series started this thing potentially.
0: Potentially. So uh, 3M hired Sid Saxon and Alex Randolph Mm -hmm. in 62 to help develop stuff. And most of what they were putting out was uh, checkers and the standards and then Alex Randolph and Sid Saxon. They had some uh, abstract games and a bunch of stuff. But he put out uh, Acquire and it did well and they they sold it in germany right and uh, eventually sid saxon became like the first superhero of board games where he is the first huge celebrity right and like he doesn't like his games are like can't stop mm-hmm. and like acquire is to me is the one that seems the most he also he had a he is a board game collector he had something like 18,000 games oh. when he died Goodness. Something like that. Uh but yeah, so Acquire is credited as the first uh is sort of the the, the blueprint right. of what became Eurogames. And so it sold in Germany uh really well and it was the the blueprint that moved forward was uh less conflict where they, they well I don't know the German word, but they coined the phrase uh social game. Uh, mm. To contrast, where most of North America and stuff were always doing, board games came out of war games and, and stuff like that. So it was conflict, it was player elimination, like games like Monopoly, where you win by bankrupting right. everybody else. Yeah. Uh, this, w- this was still a game about making as much money as you could, about buying hotels, uh, and then as they got bigger, you sold the hotels to get money to buy bigger companies <clears throat> but no one ever got eliminated. Right. So the, the rule set was clean and simple. And they they say there's a quote about uh, how the time frame was manageable. Uh, time frame, which is a key component of, of modern Euro games. Right. Uh, which is an interesting thing. If you consider it where war games and a lot of the the big games back then could take three to six hours sometimes, yeah. you know, and like people complain about monopoly taking too long, but I think it's because they play it wrong uh so that was sort of the the blueprint was uh easy to follow rules uh the conflict was eliminated, so it's not no one no one no player elimination right uh things like that i have or i wrote
1: notes well it's intre- i'm it's interesting. I'm looking at a choir on b g g right now. And I'm curious. I, I haven't played it. I've seen it around at thrift stores. I haven't really heard. Like this is this is new to me. I'm glad I'm getting educated here. Um, its significance in board game history. It's ranked at 246 overall. And I yeah, sometimes which is huge for that's a in the '60s. That's like, higher than Catan.
0: It was came out and the, they got published by Three M in 1964.
1: Right. Which I'm curious. Sometimes like. Um, <coughs> it- it's with, just
0: got a new version, like, in the last, like, five, ten years. Too, right. I yeah. think. I Don't s- quote me on that.
1: And I can see its blueprint. Um, in a, like, I've seen a lot of city building games with with actual physical kind yeah. of sit, uh, sit buildings and towers being built on the board, uh, high rise and, and things like that that are coming out.
0: Well, I but, guess originally uh, Sid Saxon had it designed as just cardboard punch-outs. Right. But 3M, while well, building their, their series, uh, there was a thing... In, One of the quotes was talking that, uh, like, they changed the name and they changed some of the theme. And uh, it's thought that it was because they had another game with that name and that theme that they'd already been working on. So they already had some artwork and they already had uh, some stuff together. So then they talked to Sid Saxon and negotiated. Uh, There were a couple things that he had to give up, basically, to to make the game. And uh, they were using little wooden tiles with no art on them, just like c thirty one sort of thing, yeah, but it's because that's those are the components that they had, so right. I mean, as a cost saving thing they were they were using what they had uh to get it out, and then there's a bunch of different publications that came out after with different like stacking plastic molded
1: pieces, and yeah. all kinds of stuff yeah, that's the ones I'm <laughs> kind of looking at here. Yeah, because you know a lot of people when um...
0: oh the, the the last thing was uh, the emphasis for the gameplay yeah. was on the systems and the mechanics, right? So they became more interesting uh, mechanics and systems that you're playing instead of what what everybody was used to for rolling and moving and combat and like there was a there was more it stuff was... going on. There was more. There was no Sid Saxon's pitch, uh, I guess, for a choir that he was really excited about, and it is a great. Uh, lead in for what Eurogames became was that there was no dice, there was no spinners, there was right. no like it was these are the mechanics and it's you you playing the game mm-hmm. without the game playing you kind of thing. So yeah, whereas and at know. the time that that would that would have been a huge thing because you know every game.
1: Well, like you said earlier about the, the kind of social game. Uh, yeah. If you're talking about Monopoly, I mean roll and move. Yeah. That that game is all about how how you're feeling playing that game and how you're negotiating and how you're cutting each other off. It, it's yeah, there's mechanics in that game, but it's a social that's a social experience of
0: yeah. So the the social game uh, from the German like it was a society game was it was the uh, German phrase I don't know uh, theirs was uh, that mean meant a game that built society oh not. How you interact with players, right? But a game that built up society instead of tearing it down or warring, hmm. right? So the return uh, of German toy manufacturing after the Second World War had companies like Ravensburger, who'd been around since 1800s, and like before the wars, Germany had been, uh, you know, the world leader in toy manufacturing, right? And then after the war, all the All the European companies and the North American companies were selling monopolies and risks, and they couldn't do that. They didn't have the rights to publish those. So Ravensburger had to uh, sort of reinvent things, and they started looking for their own designers and coming up with new and new stuff. And that's when 3M had moved in. Right. Uh, And I don't know if they were their own entity there, if they'd partnered up, but that's where these games started selling, and that that led to more and more creative stuff. And that's where... Like, Germany has always... Uh, looked at toy manufacturing and games and stuff in a completely different light than mm-hmm. North America does. Uh, in Germany, there has been... Uh, they deal with board games the way they movies get dealt with here. Like, there's right. all the newspapers have uh, review columns and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I can't say all. Oh, I'm not from there. Yeah. Just just reading what I've been reading about it, uh, there's been a higher status there. And, uh, and that's why when Essen came out and the Essen Awards... Uh, the spiel jar right uh, it's it 's like a cons thing for movies, but for games and it 's you know it 's the biggest convention in the world there 's it's, oh. it's, everything over here is tiny compared to compared to Essen for now you know or has been it 's getting yeah. bigger and bigger now that 's that 's where we 're at now where it 's becoming huge here now too
1: and and there 's an esteem attached to German board game hobby and industry you know and we don 't have to get into this <laughs> conversation but you know the Euro game versus the Ameritrash game uh, has you know it has mi- people feel really mixed about those terms. I know I know, listen to to a lot of podcasts. Lots of game designers don't like the term Ameritra- Ameritrash, and there are lots of Euro style games released in America. Um, but it's almost like you know um, when you hear that, you just get this this generalized impression of like. Oh, yeah, America's making kind of simple, blockbuster, trashy games, uh, but Europeans and Germans in particular are making, like, classy, thinky, mechanically strateg- strategically sound games, um, which isn't the case but uh, necessarily and for every designer, but there's still that kind of reverence yeah. to, to Germany and, and, and their board game presence. And know? it seems
0: like it boils down to this, this one thing where uh, after the wars... Uh, conflict wasn't something they, they could sell in Germany. So where the rest of the world kept up war games, and especially after the war where war games kept coming out and now right. it was like the world against Nazi, a world against Germany, uh, those games couldn't sell in Germany. You know, like you, right. It was illegal to have anything that had a Nazi symbol on it. So uh, there's, there was an interesting passage uh, where they would try and uh, just sort of change some of the games to sell them as war games, but those games were treated in game stores like pornography uh, where they were kept under the shelf and behind a curtain. And like, if you would like, you could walk in and be like, yeah, you got a new war games kind of thing. And like a little socially taboo. Yeah. So it was, uh, so their, their whole thing was to find new ways to, to, to publish these games, new ways to play games, new ways to whatever. And we're at a great spot now where since Catan has exploded on the world and this revival has happened where, the Ameritrash stuff that had kept going with maybe combat and conflict and that sort of thing is now married to these uh, rule sets and, and right. different mechanics and different concepts. So there's this, we're living in a time where games are now a little bit of everything, you know? Like you're getting heavy theme and Euro games that didn't yeah. used to happen and you're getting uh, some great mechanics and great systems and new ways to play what would have been, you know, more combat heavy Right, trashier games that were all theme and and less substance. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I don't, I don't mean offense to any side of that. No, no, uh, stuff. I love it all. It's it's fantastic. Uh, it is very it? fascinating.
1: Question for you that you yeah, may or may okay. not have the answer for, but uh, we we're. T- to back it up a couple steps to the social game, which I was misconstruing as like the social yeah, kind I'm, of see, uh, I'm curious feelings if, around the table. Because
0: now people say that they're a social gamer, yeah. and I'm wondering if that phrase has sort of trickled down from that original concept of society games right? Uh, and, and been misconstrued in that sense. Well, not misconstrued, but it has become that because that's how people see themselves as yeah. now, right?
1: So my question was, because I feel like Americans in general, um, and Canadians too in general, w- maybe would consider uh, Monopoly fitting under that definition of like, yeah, capitalism is how you build a society.
0: No, no. A Monopoly, the whole point of the game is to bankrupt your friends. Right. The but, whole the whole thing is to crush.
1: Right. I'm, I'm making a, a, okay. a, a pro capitalist argument that yeah, people are going to get crushed in capitalism, but that's how you build a society. Anyways, my question is, is there a version of Monopoly or or something like Monopoly in Germany? that uh, isn't isn't cr- crushing or is ca- or is capitalism well, acquire right
0: is that acquire is the same type of game of the monopoly whereas you're playing an economy game you're buying uh, businesses you're right. building your wealth you're selling your stuff you're buying stuff but you're not crushing your opponent. Right. You're just trying to be better at it. Thematically, you're not trying
1: you're like, to, like, ruin this person's yeah, life. Yeah, where
0: that's yeah. how you win Monopoly, by by crushing yeah. them. And the, the alternative to that for Monopoly is Monopoly. Like, Monopoly is uh, derived from the Landlord's game, right. which was played in two different styles, mm-hmm. one in the Monopoly style and the other like it was a teaching device for how uh, social systems socialist systems could work yeah right it was the monopoly side of it was to show how bad capitalism could be and then the other side of it was to show how how there are better systems right you know it was it was sort of to as far as i understand it it was to show uh the two extremes of of that capitalist idea right and then monopoly just became which is so you
1: know, is so fascinating yeah. There's, there was
0: another game called Finance
1: yeah.
0: that came out that was based uh, more closely to the original Landlords game. <clears throat> and where if... Ah, see, and I'm going to get this wrong. If Monopoly was published by... You've got, you got the computer open. Was that a Milton Bradley Park, or Milton was that... Milton Bradley or, or Parker Brothers. Or That's, Parker Brothers. So one of them had Monopoly. The other one uh, ended up eventually uh, putting out Finance. Right. And then the Monopoly company... in in true Monopoly sense, bought them out, and eventually uh, buried it.
1: Yeah, that's too perfect. It's funny, too, because I feel like now if I, you know, I don't really ever really plan to play Monopoly with my kids, although we played this Mario Kart gamer Monopoly, which kind of puts it in a direction that's actually fun. That's nice, like,
0: for so long, Monopoly has just regurgitated itself, and now with that one, they're they've changed enough they've of it. They've
1: reinvented it a little bit. Because, uh, you know, when I was playing it as a kid, of course, you love the incentive, uh, what happens in your brain, of just getting all the money, right? Um, but I imagine if I did play classic Monopoly that I grew up with with my kids, you could kind of embed some empathy in the game. Our, ki- our kids have lots of feelings. And, and um, I imagine if we were playing that game and being like, oh, I, I don't want to take your money. Like, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to be poor in this game. Like, is there a way we can play this game where we <laughs> where we all win? Where you could still use Monopoly to teach how how gross capitalism can be, or how, how painful it could be for some people? It could still happen. Um, I
0: I bet you that version's there. You know, probably, there's so yeah. many uh, rebuilt versions. I saw the worst <laughs> the worst incarnation that Monopoly has put out uh, yet. I saw two of them the other day, and I was like, oh, I gotta remember to tell Steve. <clears throat> but one of them. Uh, it's a new one. It's called Monopoly, the longest game ever. Oh! And they've actually done it. So, so there's the board, and you start to go, and you go around to uh, Boardwalk, and then there's another board inside of that board, and you have to go all the way back. Oh, <laughs> around. Wh- and they've why? Just, they've just doubled the track. Cause, cause they'll do anything with it. I don't know. It's it going.
1: Yeah. So interesting. But and, and I mean, it's 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 still so interesting because you know. You know, you started this conversation thinking about, well, where are we, where are we today with with modern board gaming? And for most people, I feel like when you talk about, oh, you play board games, if they're hobby board gamers, they're like, oh, yeah, it started with Catan. Like, at 9 of 10, that's who it is. And maybe not a lot of people are thinking uh, much farther back than that. But if I'm talking to people like that I work with who don't play games at all, when I say, uh, I play board games, like, four nights a week or something like that. And they're like, oh, like, Monopoly? Like, there's still a real big p- portion uh, who will ask, oh, like, Monopoly, like, Game of Life it's or whatever. still...
0: I mean, it's still covered that way, you know. Like I, yeah, I see yep. at least one article a week where where it's like the best suggestions for board games over the holidays or something, and it's it's Monopoly and it's Scrabble and it's so.
1: But it's still so inter- it's interesting with getting you're better with you, you know, reading this book and unpacking a little bit of the history. Even when Monopoly wa- was happening and its takeover was starting, there were still these other uh, games like Acquire happening, and we'll talk. There'll be a few others um, that were more. Uh, you know, were the first step in the evolution of modern hobby board games with mechanics and, yeah. and, and in-depth strategy. Uh, like those were there, but it's not like when I say yeah, I play board games four nights a week, and, and people say, "Oh, like a choir?" Like that's not going to happen unless I'm.
0: Well, even in, even in the in industry, <laughs> uh, like inside the hobby, the first few years of Spiel the Jar awards, they were won by a uh, small, light like uh Liar's Dice basically won right. one year. You know, uh they'd retooled, I can't remember who retooled it, uh to a game called Bluff. Right. <clears throat> and they made it more more interesting and a little more in depth, but you know, that was like the third or fourth year that Spiel the Jar was running. Um so it wasn't it wasn't for years into Spiel the Jar that that bigger games and and the games that we think of now even started yeah. winning that those awards. So Sure. So it took a while. And one of the one of the other games I wanted to mention was uh and I'm not sure if it was an American game it's by uh, James Uh it was a game called Crude uh, the oil game and it came out in 1974 right and didn't do very well and then I guess it got republished without uh James Saleron knowing about it in Germany as a game called like McMalty or something mm. and it it is uh, spoken of as the game that's responsible for uh, the innovation it had was that you rolled the dice and and that would pay out the resource for everybody, right. which became the main mechanic of Catan like and years
1: and years later many more since yeah. yeah so
0: uh you know there's just and there 's probably so many more building blocks uh going on oh, that sure. i that I want to know, and I wish I knew them all and I will well i 'm glad you're
1: doing i'm glad i'm glad someone on this podcast yeah. is taking the time to figure out how we got to where we're f- where we are and why we would want to be talking about board games in the first place.
0: Yeah, and and we uh oh, yeah, we stumble and stumble because uh because we're everyday people. <laughs>
1: yeah, everyday <laughs> we're people. We're not
0: board game experts, we're just regular people who love them.
1: And we're we're just discovering that like I learn something different about board games every day. I mean, it's um you know, my Instagram my Green Meeple Instagram handle is is just kind of like it's a year and a half old or something, but it's like I want people to just see me discover these things for the first time and not really know what I'm talking about sometimes and other times have, have some insight into a game I've got a lot of experience with. But And I'm realizing that most of the community of people who are discovering board games in the past 10 years or so are very much the same. Yeah. We're all at different places. Uh, some, some have way more knowledge of a certain type of game or, or or one particular game, but no one knows everything. Um someone does for I'm sure. But you know yeah. what I mean. We do Since we do Jackson all seem had to be
0: eighteen thousand board games. Yeah, he knew some he stuff. He knew some stuff.
1: But it does feel like most of the, the fans that I'm interacting with and stuff on Instagram are 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 kind of stumbling through it and taking suggestions from each other. It's a it's a lot of fun. It's a really if you feel Pulled at all to start playing board games. It's a really fun community to interact with with people who are in the same boat as you. I just had a thought and it, it evaporated. It's me talking nonsensically about boats. My um,
0: evaporated. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah, it's a great time for. Well, toilet, you know, we were talking games. about it earlier. Golden like um, age. Well, I think I said that already.
1: But we were talking before we started recording about, you know, why this feels like a new. A new wave or a new resurgence of games with the with Kickstarter yeah. and what Kickstarter is doing, um, it, it seems to be changing it up again.
0: In uh, and I don't remember. I don't think it was in the the Stewart Woods book. Uh, they it had been mentioned that uh, the 3M bookshelf uh, led to what they were referring to as the second wave right. of gaming, and I I was saying that mm-hmm. maybe. Catan was the third wave, and that Kickstarter now has started like a fourth wave where. Yeah. <clears throat> Interestingly, uh, I think. So, 3M, the bookshelf uh, series, and that whole line got sold to Avalon Hill, and then Avalon Hill got bought out by Hasbro or something. Mm. It was a right. mess. But uh, I think when the 3M started that series, they were getting something like 600 and 700. Uh, board game uh, submissions a year. Right. Which is, you know, I keep thinking of, of today as being, you know, it's amazing how much is going on, how many people have the ability with uh, Kickstarter and game, places like the Game Crafter and stuff, and, and the amount of uh, prototyping conventions and stuff to start working on stuff. But, like, peep, there, there's been a huge interest in it right from the beginning. right? You know, it was kind of buried and probably... I mean it's huge now but mm-hmm. it it it's surprising to look back and see how uh it might have been missed for so long because it's always always been there and it just needed uh Well, well it's interesting. It just needed Catan.
1: It, well help. it did it it did need something to break through like kind of globally. I wish
0: I liked Catan more.
1: Yeah, I mean I can't say I don't like it because I've yeah. played it so much, hundreds of times I think when I was into it. It was the game... Yeah, it was just the thing. And I didn't... You know, I was introduced to Catan by... I know we've talked about Catan on yeah, other yeah. shows, but I was introduced to it by friends. And it's the type of thing where... I'm like, wow, this is really good. I almost I want to play it just about every day. And I'm still not thinking that there are other board games out there. Not knowing much of the history, not knowing the current state of board games in 2007 or eight. whenever I started playing Catan. Um... Just thinking like, wow, someone finally released a really good board game, and this is the only one that exists. Um, it took a while for me to to venture out to actually see if there were others, and I did not know what I was doing when I did venture out. In, um,
0: in like 96, when Catan would have been in the stores that I was going into... I was I was so obsessed with Magic the Gathering that I didn't even I didn't see right. it on the shelf anyway. Like all my money was just like buying booster packs.
1: Yeah. And it <clears> definitely <throat> wouldn't have looked as cool as, as the art you were seeing on magic cards and yeah. things like that. But you know, interesting, looking at the three M bookshelf game series here from nineteen sixty two to seventy four, uh mm-hmm. and you know, um
0: it was a lot of sports games then. Right, there think. are.
1: So a bunch of original creations are in here like a choir and then and things that sound like executive decision and high bid like they sound like uh some original creations, but then s- littered throughout this list is also backgammon and chess and yeah. go. And
0: Yeah, they had to be selling the the staples of the time. which so. is just
1: but I mean to me what it kind of speaks to is that yes, there was this interest in people that we want we want this bookshelf series of games that we can yeah. ha- put in our shelves in our study or whatever, but yet it's still so niche that we have to pull from ancient games yeah. to 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 re to repopularize or to fill out this line of games. Uh, people still aren't thinking about, and they are obviously acquire, um, but the idea of like theme and and setting and and changing these games in, in a way that didn't happen until, well no, it did happen here, but didn't go mainstream or widespread for a little while. Part
0: of the thing too is is that when people are playing games or teaching games to their kids, if they haven't, like people still want to te- teach chess to their kids. People still want to teach checkers to their kids. right? And like I even uh, have this weird feeling sometimes like am I, am I screwing up by not really spending any time on those right. with Macy? Uh, but but I don't think I am because, as much as those games are whatever they were, you know, the skills that she'd be learning from those games, she's still getting from the new games. Sure, yeah. You know, like I don't, I don't think she's missing out, especially like checkers. Uh, yeah. And I don't mean to offend huge checkers fans, but checkers is played wrong right. so often, and to make kids play it right is mean. Yeah. You know, like to to make sure that you're uh, forcing kids to take. Uh, the jump move, or take away their stuff when they don't do stuff, and like, right. so I mean, it's it's kind of a chaotic game if you're not playing it by the rules, and rarely are you going to force the kids to play by the rules. So it's yeah. a, it's I find checkers a weird one. I don't know why we're talking about checkers.
1: <laughs> well, just these <clears throat> old classic chess and go, and yeah, it's interesting. Well, back to Kickstarter for a second. Sure, something that popped in my brain um, because yeah, a couple of years ago when I again stumbling through this hobby and and figuring it out as we go. And when I figured out that people were launching games on Kickstarter and and doing quite well and releasing these new ideas, you know, of course I got right into it and started backing games that I weren't even sure were that good and because they looked good, I've learned many lessons through backing Kickstarter games the past couple of years. But what it reminds me of is if this isn't an apt analogy is, you know, my university days around 2000, 2005, 6 um this kind of resurgence of garage bands uh in the 2000s like when the strokes and the white stripes and the hives oh, yeah, yeah. and the vines and all these guys all of a sudden started recording 60s style garage uh, garage rock music it was kind of like oh we're at this point where, where everyone has access to decent enough recording equipment that you can just create this art and put it out there and and people are going to buy it and be successful and you might get a record deal or you might not. You might just get a, a crazy fan base. It's kind of what this Kickstarter resurgence is reminding me of, of these people who have ideas. They have access to technology. They have access to this like public funding uh, potential. Um, and some really cool ideas are coming out of that. And then, you know, like you just interviewed John Merchant uh, the other day. Oh, that's not live on the site yet, I don't think. But
0: uh, Monday. It, uh, so by the time this is out, it will be.
1: But a great example of someone who's like, I got this cool idea for a game, uh, Squire for Hire, mocks it up uh, does a really great job of it puts it on kickstarter and then someone's like hey we'll publish that game you know we'll we'll give you a record deal for that one yeah. and yeah just this really cool renaissance of games seems to be flooding the gates uh, and you know some good some not so good and but it's it's neat then it, all of a sudden it feels like you're opening the floodgates you know post-2000 and musically there's Since a, then, it's just been it's been nuts.
0: Kickstarter is kind of a a weird double edged sword, where I think it's it's immensely important, and I don't think uh, I don't think the industry would be where it's at if it hadn't happened. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important for sort of protecting the industry. Where if everything was as popular as it was right now, without Kickstarter, uh, the way some of the bigger companies are just buying up the smaller companies right now. I would, I would be worried that uh, it would be back to whoever could uh, submit games, and it would right. get get to be a smaller and smaller pool of what was happening. And I think it would be risky where a Kickstarter keeps things going and keeps things. You know, whoever can do it can do it. Yeah. Uh, but I, oh, what was my what was my other edge to that? It was another edge to that.
1: There was a You said it was double edged. Uh,
0: I did say that, and I had a very clear thought. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, it definitely has a second side of that.
1: Well, it definitely realize. is, double. and I mean, we don't need to get into a... a
0: yeah, some I, of the stuff that I'd want to say about Kickstarter... Uh, doesn't feel nice. Doesn't, doesn't <laughs> feel nice. Things changed for Kickstarter for me when uh, there started being a retail level. Right, so right. uh campaigns now have you can buy this game for that much, you can buy this with the accessories and the Kickstarter stuff for this much. But now there's always a level where if you're a retailer you can you can pay this much and we'll we'll get you games. And I think that started off uh to make sure that uh games could get uh to retailers because right. there's been some weird Stuff where retailers have gotten the games before the backers and stuff, but what it's done for me because we live in Canada and shipping ends up being ridiculous yeah. is that as soon as I see that there's a retailer uh, level, then I know it's going to show up at you know one of our game stores around in the next year, and it's going to save me thirty dollars on shipping if I yeah. just wait
1: the year. You're just better off pre-ordering through your game and store, and I don't
0: I don't have the budget to. Be able to buy everything I like off of Kickstarter, and you know I'll be able to buy even less if I have to pay the shipping on all of them too. So yeah. that's and that wasn't the double edge that I was thinking of, but it's definitely been a downer for me. Yeah, uh, so I still try and back like John Merchant's game that you were saying. I couldn't not back that game. It was, I think he ended up with it was free shipping, so it was thirteen dollars. It's a micro right. game, but it was thirteen dollars with free shipping, and it it looked great. I couldn't not back it. And there's other stuff where uh, where it works out that way, where I can't... Uh, what was that? Crimson...
1: Crimson Throne? Crimson, Crimson Company.
0: Co- oh, yeah. That was no, not close. like a duo in, in Europe. Uh, they had already produced the game. They'd already put it out. So their Kickstarter that I end up uh, seeing and backing, yeah. the first tier was buying the game that they already had printed, so you could get it shipped within three months kind of thing, mm. which was great. But then they added, like, for a little bit more, we're gonna we're gonna reprint it and we're gonna try and get these extra components. So you right. get metal coins and you get 3D printed or yeah. mold. I think they ended up being molded castles, and like, you know, the shipping was affordable from Europe. It was that's such a big thing for me. And we're talking too much about Kickstarter. It's gonna get it's gonna get ugly.
1: But it's interesting. It's a, it is a painting a bit of a picture of where where board games are at. Of course, publishers are all without Kickstarter, are just still doing amazing things. So. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's a, most publishers must are still taking submissions the old old fashioned oh, sure. way and yeah.
0: um, more so because now there's so many conventions yeah. and there's uh, so much going on where a lot of publishers have uh, you know meetups at the conventions where you can right. book a time to do an elevator pitch and and just there's all kinds of stuff it's it's w- way easier all the way around to to work on stuff and pitch stuff either do it yourself or try and get it to a publisher yeah. and stuff like it's it's never it's yeah, it's great.
1: It's a great time to be into playing board games. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, what do you got?
1: Uh, I've been that just was my been, spiel. I've just been really fascinated listening to this uh, history lesson. There's,
0: uh, there's more. I'm gonna. I want to dig into. I want to dig in. I can't do it today. Uh, Cause I'm not, I'm not yeah. prepared. No, but no. We'll there's in. so much more of this. Do you, uh, you want to
1: unpack it all in one go? Anyways, it's a lot.
0: Like. Part of the the where did Catan come from and why are games so popular? Uh, I was talking to you earlier is is this little thing of of putting the designer's name on the box. Oh right yeah. And it uh, it's a, it's it's funny how we you know I I never would have thought of that too much, but it's had a huge impact, uh, and it's worth looking into. And and there's some interesting backstories to that that I'm gonna. Uh, oh I love that idea. Get to.
1: And again, uh, to make a little analogy as a big comic book fan, and you know, I read comics as a teenager didn't care who was creatively making comics. I was just like, "This looks really cool, buying this awesome art I read spawn uh, a lot as a kid, I don't know if you know Spawn but it's like kind of metal it's got I've this
0: seen the movies
1: yeah it's got this metal vibe. this guy's a hell spawn who fights the angels of heaven. It's like heaven versus hell uh, beautiful art, amazing, but I was kind of buying from my uh, what a, what looked cool. Now, as a an adult, when I started getting back into reading comics in in my twenties, I I really realized who who were the who were the best writers. You know, I started reading Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, Neil Gaiman, um, and I, I was just it exploded my mind in in a way where I'm like, oh, I don't really follow a superhero anymore or type of comic. I follow a creator because yeah. they're they're thinking outside of the box and they're doing new things. That's and,
0: what that's what that did for And that's games, what is and that's seven. what
1: it's done for me in the past 10 years is that outside of a game looking really cool, maybe having a really cool theme, artwork, all that's still really important, especially when you're browsing Kickstarter, something needs to catch your eye or when you're browsing a publisher uh website or catalog, magazine, whatever. Um, but for me now, if I see a, a certain designer's name, I'm immediately interested if, before there's a, even any art or design or mechanics. If I know someone, so-and-so, Vlada Shvatil, or um, oh, don't make me think of a name, Shem Phillips is, is coming up with a, a new game, I'm interested before I, before I see anything. And you can kind of take stock in in the design. I was just started learning. I was telling you on the way over this game Anachrony. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen David Tertsies, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Uh, maybe. Mm. Uh, I've seen his name around a lot, like Tricurion or Tricurion and Anachrony. That's
0: a beautiful game, too. Tricurion. One well, of my, us should get that.
1: I Mind Clash has that. a pretty cool graphic appeal to the, however they're putting their games together. And then he has this new one coming out called Leaving Earth with these right. aliens yeah. on the cover where they're like holding a license plate. The art's really cool. So I've seen his name around. I've been really excited to try an acronym I got it for Christmas, but it's been an intimidating box. And he also, um, like the Atoma Factory guy who works for Stonemeyer Games, um, oh, God, Morton Peterson, I think. Morton, yeah. It's close. Uh, If it's not that, it's pretty close. Um, But David Tersey has been um, approached and hired to make solo AIs, so he's really, really quite good at that. And you know, I got to play it for a few games, very impressed. But right away, after playing that game three times, both he designed it and the solo AI that he designed, I'm like, yep, that's someone now when I see his name, I'm gonna take notice right away. And that's really cool, yeah. If if people's a really cool thing that they get to put their name on the box. And 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 it seems even more recently now, uh the a lot of game companies are putting the artist's name yeah, right on the box. That's th- that had to go hand
0: in hand. Like <coughs> Reading any uh, kids' books, especially, it's always written by, illustrated by. Yeah, and I think those two things should always go hand in hand because that's what's selling your game.
1: Yeah, and so. again, to to relate it to comics, at some point, there's a uh,
0: we just picked up uh, Huns from that uh, board game bliss oh, yeah. sale. On the back of Huns, he has uh, thank yous, which is great. So the the designer actually wrote out uh, thanks to, and then has a list of. Uh,
1: which is like nice. people who helped create the yeah. game, like every step of the way. Fantastic. Yeah, because there is more than this the designer and the artist, too, of course. But
0: and like that could have been in the liner notes, I guess you could right. call them. Could have been the rule book, but uh, it's on the box. Nice touch.
1: Yeah, but you can see it kind of get into a place again where, uh, and I know I'm 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 relating to other interests in my life, but with comics, since independent comics have have surged in the past ten or fifteen years uh, outside of the big Marvel DC thing, uh, a lot of the times writers and artists split split the creation. 50-50, even though if the writer came up with the concept, they bring on an artist, it's like 50-50. So if there's someone they sell the movie rights to that, the artist is getting 50, which makes a lot of sense because yeah. they're world-building with the writer. Um, I can almost see uh, it happening. Maybe it's already happening. With someone like, I'm looking over at your shelf, that's why I said Shem Phillips a minute ago, uh, Miko's art for a lot of those Raiders and Architects games. Um, I could just see someone approaching an artist and mm-hmm. saying, can you just build a world for me or i have a i have a, a small game idea but i want it to be yours uh where one might be as important or more important how than was other, that was that was the I t- guess that's t- how title work too. title blades right like yeah.
0: title blades i think that was sort of the story of how that whole game came about was the 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 artists and the designers that had done the game before right then worked hand it, like step by step with the designers for Tidal Blades to build everything as they went. Right. I think that's I think that's how it went. It was much more of a a collaboration. Yeah. For the whole game, than here's our game. We need art for it. Right. I think Tidal Blades was built from the ground up as a collaboration.
1: Yeah, and I could see that that that's going to happen. I think more. I
0: think I remember reading that in the design diary.
1: And that's a big part of how size worked too, right? But I'm, I'm not sure. What came first there? So, yeah,
0: I think the the 1920s mm-hmm. world existed first, and then I think Stagmire. Uh,
1: whether that sparked an idea or whether he had yeah. a pretty good design that could just fit it. Um, I know he was really inspired by I think the art was like, there, but... I think he was really inspired by Terra Mystica maybe for for that game. Yeah, yeah I was reading something. But well, we said we weren't going to talk about that, and so we get our uh, our other good friend Dave into chat about a, a game in some detail yeah. with us in the future. And i do
0: Waterdeep first. Yeah, yeah. Water deep first, Dave. Uh, we'll need you soon. What, where are where you at?
1: Where are you at, Dave? Um, yeah, so we're back. Season three. Season this three. is it. This is us just chatting uh, freely, being everyday, everyday people,
0: talking about everything. People. Yeah, that's, that's us. Good. Yeah. well you know what? I didn't get. Uh, oh yeah. I guess that's it. Here we
1: we, we will see you next time.
0: Next time. Well, we won't see you at all. No. Uh, we we have an email. Uh, feedback at everydaymeeple.com. Let's start that again.
1: There we go. Hi,
0: Steve. Hey, Mitch.